Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we talk about the challenges of material science and keeping pace with modern technology. Now one of the big challenges about inventing a new material or process is then what you do 5-10 years down the track. Can you recycle it? Is there any unintended consequences? This week we look at some tales of recycling, developing new materials that are less damaging to the environment, and making sure we don't use materials that have long-term health impacts. Recycling seems like an incredibly simple thing. You sort your waste into different categories. Depending on where you are, the number of bins you sort your waste into may include paper, certain types of plastic, glass, organic waste, and you then dispose of them. But when it comes to something like a smartphone, it's a lot more complicated. And e-waste is incredibly difficult to sort. And one of the main reasons for that is that out of the 118 elements that are typically found, 75 of them can be found inside your smartphone or electronic device. And normally, some of these are actually pretty easy to separate out and actually pretty common. Things like aluminium or silicon, look, they're relatively cheap materials and figuring out a way to separate them is quite straightforward. But for others, like the certain metals, which we call the rare earth metals, that are actually very useful for things like high-performance batteries, for screens, for circuits. These things aren't used in high quantities, but they are incredibly difficult to separate out from each other. Now, these 17 elements that we call the rare earth metals are pretty much essential for most smart devices. Basically, it's a function of the high-powered circuitry and batteries that we have. But we can't really separate them out, which means they tend to go into the environment as just general landfill waste, which can lead to leaching out into the environment, which is environmentally damaging. But the processes to separate them out, if you even if you do try to do that, also involve really high-powered solvents to dissolve things. And that is also quite toxic and damaging for the environment as well. So researchers all over the world have been trying to find ways to do this more efficiently. Because most of the recycling process at the moment involves dumping some stuff into acid and hoping that it melts off in different maize and you can separate out the material that way. This approach basically puts the object into a chemical reaction which enables one of the elements, is what you're trying to do at least, to change phase, like going from liquid to solid. But the problem is you then use filtration to filter out each of those things. And with rare earth metals, separating them out it normally involves an acid, which melts down all the surrounding things and leaves the metal ions on their own. They move out of the acidic phase into an organic phase, but the problem is they all do this roughly at a similar rate, which means that if you're trying to separate one rare earth metal from another, let's say looking at terbidium and with terbarium, Trying to separate the two from each other is incredibly difficult because they respond at basically the same way, which means you have to keep repeating and repeating the process, which makes it incredibly inefficient. It works really, really, really well as a recycling process, but you just have to do it 10,000 times, and that means that it's not really viable to recycle all of these materials despite their high value. And that's what researchers from University of Pennsylvania are trying to address. They've just published a new approach in the journal Argonvant Chemie, International Edition. And in this, they describe a way of using one of the other properties of these rare earth metals to help separate them from each other. Now, what they learned is that there's different properties of these different materials, um, particularly the paramagnetism. 
and paramagnetism is basically how attracted these different rare earth metals are to magnetic fields. Now, whilst the solubility and the response to acids are very similar between these rare earth metals, their paramagnetism is quite different. And that means you can use this magnetic property to try and help separate them. So what they discovered is that by combining a magnetic field with, and this is the key part of this step, a decrease in temperature actually cause the metal ions in these different rare earth metals to crystallize at different rates. So now all of a sudden you can tell lanthanum from neodymium and that makes it really easy to actually separate them. So they use the lower temperatures to crystallize and that is actually a pretty common approach for lab separation and analysis of materials. But chucking in the magnetism to that step as well helps really separate out these rare earth metals really, really efficiently. How efficiently? Well, let's take an example that the researchers undertook, uh, including lead researcher Robert Higgins. They took some materials like lanthium and dysporosium, and they put it in a 50-50 mixture. And then by chilling them, so lowering the temperature and forcing it to crystallize, and then using a magnetic filtering method, they could separate out 99.7 of the dysporosium in one step. That's amazingly efficient in for any process. But compared to what they were doing before, the typical filtering and separation process, they could get a 1% efficiency. Now they can get a 99.7% efficiency. That is a huge boost from nearly next to nothing to nearly everything. And that's pretty amazing. So when you consider this type of approach, it means that we can now work on using this specific property, the paramagnetism and the low temperature crystallization of these rare earth metals. And that will enable us to actually filter and separate out rare earth metals in a more efficient, much more, 100 times more efficient way than we are before. Now, of course, there's still ways to improve the reaction's efficiency, and you don't want to have to involve so many complicated processes to make sure it works for all of the materials. And of course, then the big challenge is, is how to do it on a large industrial scale. But finding a property that can be used is the first step in making recycling of e-waste efficient and sustainable. Now, if you can cut down on our e-waste by finding new and efficient ways to recycle them, then that means that instead of dumping our old mobile phones into landfill, we actually have a way to get back those rare earth metals, which has a double benefit of meaning we have recycled these rare earth metals, which means less mining, but it also has the benefit of ensuring that we don't leach out these rare earth metals into our soils in our landfill. Now, this is some great research from the University of Pennsylvania, funded by the US Department of Energy, published in the journal Argonvant Chemie. As we learn about new technologies, scientists, chemists and materials engineers try and develop new and wondrous materials to solve the problems of the day. Sometimes those problems are actually the problems of the past. Let's take a pretty simple problem. You don't want things to burn when exposed to heat or catch fire in a really rapidly flammable way. For instance, in your kitchen or maybe in your laundry areas with appliances, you probably also want something that's waterproof to an extent. And that's why things like asbestos were incredibly popular. 
But of course, we learned, sadly, unfortunately for many people, too late, that asbestos, when releasing its fibres, when it's cut or pierced, can be very damaging to people's health, leading to all kinds of diseases. So, great, okay, we get rid of asbestos. Now we replace it with other materials. And the same thing can be said for flame retardant materials that we have as additives to the process. We've heard of PFAS and other things that are used as flame retardants in water, but they've had the problem for leaching out into the groundwater or to the soil. And years after those chemicals have been stopped in use, those sites remain contaminated. And in Australia, for example, we are having large issues with this around former military bases or training facilities for firefighters, where this PFAS in the soil is leaching out to the surrounding communities, causing all kinds of health impacts. But more close to home for many people is the flame retardants added to plastics. And this is an area of study that has been investigated by researchers from University of Toronto, including Dr. Marta Vernier and Dr. Arlene Bloom, who's the Executive Director of Green Science Policy Institute at the University of Toronto. And these researchers have been looking into a particular class of flame retardants. Now, back in time, let's go back a few years, one type of flame retardants were added to plastics, known as polybrominated diphenyl ethers, or PBDE, which were commonly used in furniture and electronics and even children's products. Why? Because it prevented these materials from catching fire easily, which for a children's toy, you probably want, but you also definitely want that in your furniture. You want your couch to combust as slowly as possible. And that's fair enough, but the problem is these tended to leach out and cause health issues in the long term. So after many, many years of research and advocacy, PBDEs were phased out, which was a great victory for researchers and advocates because it meant that, well, it helped save lives in the long term. But they needed to be swapped out with something because there's many flammability regulations from governments which are meant to delay ignition for a few seconds, but it makes fires less dangerous. And that's the idea, or at least what they were trying to do. So manufacturers looked for a new additive to reduce the flammability of their materials and meet the flammability regulations that they were trying to pass. So they turned to another type of chemical additive, this one, organophosphate, which is actually an organic-based additive. But the problem is, now these researchers are finding, including NIEHS director Linda Bourbon, is that these flame retardants, just like the prior generation, are also leaching out and spreading quite fast. Now, flame retardants pose a particular grave threat to children through two ways. Babies are born with the same level of exposure as their parents, but then they also increase their exposure through hand-to-mouth behaviour which means that typically young children can have three to 10 times more flame retardant levels than adults. And this flame retardant levels have been known to be associated with lower IQ development, reproductive problems, and other serious health harms. So what to do about it and how does it spread? Well, these new organophosphate flame retardants, just like the old class, actually are continuously migrating out, leaching out of products and dropping into dust. When that dust contaminated with the flame retardant gets on your hands, you can end up ingesting it. And if you're a kid, putting your hand in your mouth all the time, you can see how quickly they can ingest it. We could also end it up, quite simply, with it, some of it in your sandwich. And what scientists have found is that the level of organophosphate flame retardants are often up to 10 to 100 times higher in air, dust and water than 
prior flame retardants, which means that this class, the organophosphates, are actually far more likely to seep out and spread everywhere. In fact, they've actually been seeing spread through wind and water to far away from their origins, even to the ocean depths, icy mountaintops, or to the Earth's poles. These organophosphates are now found worldwide, according to this study. So what are manufacturers meant to do? It shows that we need to take a more significant collective approach to these flame retardant problems. We obviously want to have fire resistant materials in our furniture and electronics and our children's products, but we need to deal with the chemicals as a class rather than banning one chemical, everyone jumps to the next chemical and then the problem just reappears itself 10 years later. We need to try and find a way that have less leach out it also means that we can stop having this constant cyclic substitution and avoid the use of unneeded flame retardants altogether, which requires design change as well as material change. And it's studies like this, published in the Environmental Science and Technology Letters Journal, that help push manufacturers and researchers to find new approaches in both the material science front, the chemical front, and also the regulation front to ensure that we have a comprehensive approach that doesn't just create another problem 10, 15, 20 years down the line. This is some great work from a number of researchers, including Dr. Arlene Bloom, Mam Tabel, Linda Bourbon, and published in the journal Environmental Science and Technology. Now, one of the most magic materials of the modern era is, of course, plastic. And plastic is a fantastic material because it is so hardy. It doesn't degrade and it doesn't deteriorate. And that is a pretty amazing property that also makes it really difficult to recycle. We all know the problems of single-use plastics. Plastics that are so resilient, they just stay around forever instead of degrading and decaying. And that is a big problem because out of the 40% of global plastic waste produced in 2015, 40% of it went through the incineration process and was burned to produce energy or reduce the volume. And that was useful, but that dumps carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, as well as a bunch of other nasty stuff. And the rest of that plastic waste, 60%, went to landfill. Only around 1% was left uncollected and just leaks out into the environment, which is a small percentage. But overall, that's a lot of plastic just lying around, either burnt or perhaps sitting in a landfill. And the moment is, that's not really great. But plastic, according to researchers from the Chalmers, according to researchers from the Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden, have been developing a new way to make plastic into a circular material and process. And that's what lead researcher Henrik Thunman is trying to figure out. Because plastic is so incredibly hardy, and it's produced in a pretty interesting way that it could theoretically be possible to basically make plastic a circular process, which means that you make a plastic product out of the raw materials, and then you use the plastic product. When you're done with it, you send it to recycling, and then from that recycled plastic, you make a new plastic product. The problem is that we can only do that for some types of plastics at the moment. We don't have a good way to recycle all types of plastics. But there is potentially hope, and that's what these researchers have been looking into. What they've discovered is a way to break down any type of plastic using a specific thermal process and convert any of this plastic waste into plastic gas which is actually what they need for the creation of plastic in the first place, 
which means that instead of having to invent an entirely new chemical-based dissolving process, you're actually turning the material back into the very thing you need to recycle it from the very beginning. And that is pretty exciting. Now, what they had to do was use steam cracking. And this is very similar to the way that plastic itself is normally formed. Brand new plastics today are made by shattering or cracking fossil oils and gas fractions in a device known as a cracker inside petrochemical plants. Inside this cracker, the building blocks consisting of simple molecules for plastic are created. You then add in many different types of configurations and then you get all the different types of plastics we see in society. And there's a lot of them. But what these researchers were looking at was trying to find another way of doing a similar thing doing a cracking process using steam. And they've developed a very efficient way of doing so, which can actually turn the plastic back into fresh, brand new plastic at the end of the day. So what they did was find exactly the right temperature, which is around 850 degrees, and the right heating rate and residence time. Because heating and anything to do with thermodynamics is actually incredibly complex. You have to consider not just the heat itself, but how you got there, the heating rate, and how long you stay at that temperature. And they've been able to demonstrate they're able to turn around 200 kilograms of plastic waste into useful plastic gas an hour. And that's quite a bit when you think about it. It certainly beats burning it. Now that plastic gas can be recycled at the molecular level back into the cracking process to produce brand new plastic. And the idea here is you use this steam cracking process alongside your existing cracking process of producing plastics out of fossil oil and gas fractions already at these large petrochemical plants. So these things would work side by side. And in fact, it would also mean you could just substitute in. So instead of throwing in fossil oils, you just use this recycled plastic gas. And now you don't need to rely on newly extracted oils. You could use this plastic leftover waste, which you have recycled. And they've demonstrated the feasibility of this process. And this has been outlined in the journal Sustainable Materials and Technology. But of course, the idea here is that this could do it at a rapid rate. And it doesn't require new infrastructure. It, in fact, uses the same infrastructure. The problem is finding enough plastic waste. Because a typical plastic plant requires around 1 to 2 million tonnes of sorted plastic waste per year to match the current production levels which are done from oil and fossil gas. But that's not unachievable, um, considering that a country like Sweden produces around 1.6 million tonnes of plastic a year, which is pretty similar numbers. So while you would consider this as a pretty much as a substitute replacement, it would work, but it requires a rethink of our current petrochemical plants, but not a rebuilding of the plants. And that's the important part here. You just change your source material. So instead of relying on oil or fossil gas, you use this plastic gas and you create this plastic gas using a steam process rather than a chemical solvent based process, which again makes it more sustainable and simple as well as efficient. This means that we could have a circular process for producing plastic without having to invent and build entire new plastic plant processing facilities. And that makes it very, very interesting and exciting. Now, this is some great work from Chalmers University, including by researchers Henrik Thuman, Teresa Buruto Vilches, Martin Simon, and others, and published in the journal Sustainable Materials and Technologies. It still has a while to go until a plant is fully converted, but even now, preamble to produce 200 kilograms of plastic and reuse that into fresh new plastic an hour 
is incredibly efficient compared to most other plastic recycling technologies. And the fact that it works for any plastic type also makes it incredibly attractive. Now, this is some great work from Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, Le Grange Point. From better recycling of plastics to finding new ways to help improve and keep our materials from combusting and making sure they're safe for the long term. This week we looked at the challenges of material science. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.